We are starting, though, with some concerns about a Delta Seniors Housing Cooperative. And it's being criticized because, according to those who are against this plan, there are plans that would ban couples from living together unless they are spouses. That would mean no roommates, no family members living in the same units. And some say this is discriminatory and it is cruel. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Kathleen Ruff. Kathleen Ruff is BC's very first, uh, BC's, I'll get this uh, get this straight, she's the first director of the Human Rights Branch here in BC. Kathleen, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. This is a seniors housing cooperative, the Crescent Downs Housing Cooperative in Delta, and one of the policies is raising some concerns. Tell us a bit about that if you can. Yes, um, what happened, the way I got involved was because um, I was asked uh, by a friend to help because uh, um, her, her dad and her sister were living at the co-op. And what happened was that in 1998, when the dad and his wife joined the co-op, you were allowed to have a family member uh, be a joint member with you and live with you at the co-op. Um, but then in 1999... The co-op changed its the lease, and it said family members were forbidden. You couldn't live with a family member. It's a seniors co-op, and um, it said you could only live with with a spouse. And so, um, what they found out was that in 1999, when they adopted this policy, they neglected to register it with the BC government, which meant that it was not enforceable. So um, they realized this when. Um, my friend's father, who was widowed and was old and vulnerable, and uh, his daughter had moved to live with him. Um, when he told the co-op that his daughter was moving to live with him, they said, no, no, she cannot. She must go. We don't allow family members. This is an elderly man in his late 80s with health problems who cannot survive alone. And so... Um, they were extremely distraught and scared. And so then the co-op wrote again to them saying, oh, we made a mistake. Um, we realized that um, we did not register the new lease. And so um, your daughter is allowed to live with you, but she is not a member of the co-op and she has no survivor's rights. And so for um, the past four years, they were living together, but with a lot of fear and moving ahead to now bring in the same rule, prohibiting a family member from living with you, but to also register it and enforce it. And as soon as it would be um, registered, um, the lease that this gentleman had would be null and void, and he, his daughter would, would not be allowed to, to stay there. And so... Um, they were living with a lot of anxiety and asked me to help them. So I made, a com- I made uh, two complaints a year ago in September 2021 with the BC Human Rights Tribunal. Um, and uh, a year later, um, nothing has happened. Um, I think our human rights system is, is, is broken. And so in the meantime, he has died living under distress and I was unable to to get a justice for him, a hearing for him. And his daughter is being evicted right now. 
Um, and and she's so then I decided I'd make a complaint on behalf of <laughs> all seniors because I think this is so wrong. Uh, we should be helping seniors, not punishing seniors. Right. And, and Kathleen, so she's being evicted because while they allowed her to move in, like you said, so she, but she didn't become an owner or co-own the co-op, his portion of the co-op with him. She was, I mean, technically, I guess, under their eyes, she was a roommate and now she's being evicted? They um, gave her and, and her dad to understand that she could not be a member of the co-op because they said that they were forced to allow her to to live there because they hadn't um, registered um, their their new lease, which prohibited a family member. So they said, we are reluctantly allowed, we are reluctantly forced to allow you to live there, but you are not a member and you have no survivor's rights. And the dad and, and the daughter understood that they were not allowed to be members. And so, um, and, and now, um, She's being, you know, her case is going forward, so I, I won't get into details about that. I'm hoping that, you know, some action will take place. It's a year later, and I'm hoping that the Human Rights Tribunal will be able to set up a hearing so um, her, her case can be looked at. I asked the housing court to um, please wait until the Human Rights Tribunal had ruled on her case that I filed for her. Um, before evicting her, but they refused. And I felt that was um, very, very um, regrettable in that it sends a message um, to the province that the housing co-op doesn't really give much of a rat for the human rights legislation of BC and are going ahead anyway. Um, They also have given no reason for, for their policy they have refused to talk to try to settle the complaint. They have rejected the Human Rights Tribunal um, mediation session. They refused to participate in that. So what they have done is, is caused the, the, the issue to drag on and drag on and drag on and drag on. And I think most people w- would, would give up, and certainly an ordinary person on their own, they wouldn't stand a prayer of dealing with this. And to my mind, you know, we need more kindness. In our world, we need more respect and cooperation and, and solidarity, and that is what the cooperative movement is supposed to stand for. And I totally support the cooperative movement. I'm a big supporter of it. But the, the way this co-op is acting is, is the complete opposite of cooperation and kindness. You, you and I've not been able to get anyone else to take action. And so, uh, you know... I've been taking action and have now filed a complaint on behalf of all seniors um, that this policy, um, which they adopted in 1999, they forgot to register, and they are now seeking to, to register, any, to approve and um, enforce any moment, is, is discriminatory and, and is demeaning to seniors. And we should not take away the rights of seniors to choose to live with a family member. Who is also a senior. Right. So, and so the policy is, if I'm clear on this, the policy that they want to, to, to bring in or to make sure it's it, for this particular co-op, that if two seniors, because you have to be, I think, 55 plus to live in this co-op, if two 
people that want to live together, they have to be either married or in a marriage-like union. It can't be, say, a roommate or, or two family members who aren't spouses. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and you mentioned this, I think, or trying to get answers from the co-op. What, do you have any idea what the reasoning is, why they want that restriction in place? They've never given any reason, which, again, I think is the opposite of cooperation and openness and, and, and respect. Um, no, they've given no reason. And um, the other thing that troubles me is that members of the co-op, um, I'm concerned that they have not been provided accurate information because they have been told that the Cooperative Housing Federation of British Columbia supports this rule. But it does not. It opposes this rule. And I've asked them to please um, inform their members that they were given incorrect, um, deceiving information. And I, I can't, they won't tell me, they won't answer me. So I, I the members, I believe, um, as far as I know, are not aware that the policy that they are moving to adopt um, is, not, is opposed by the by the um, Federation of Housing Corps in BC. And the other thing is that once they pass the rule, like they're supposed to be having a vote on it any time now, and I think that, you know, likely they'll approve it because they think the BC Federation uh, of Housing Corps wants them to adopt this rule. Once they adopt it, they register it with the BC government, with BC registries. BC registries will automatically register it. I spoke with them, the, the deputy registrar phoned me and explained that they have no power um, to refuse to register a rule, even if it's discriminatory. And so then it becomes enforceable. And so then in BC, um, we're allowing um, seniors to be stripped of the right to choose to live with a family member in a loving, safe, respectful relationship. And um, with no reason given for it, I just think um, this is just so wrong. And it's going backwards on human rights uh, from a, a housing cooperative, which should be a leader for human rights and should be doing everything possible to support vulnerable seniors and respect them and allow them the choice um, to live with a family member. If you're widowed, this gentleman was 91 years of age. He was widowed. Getting a spouse was not an option for him. And in any case, no one should be ordered to get a spouse, right, if they right. or otherwise live alone. And he couldn't live alone. He couldn't survive alone. And so this is, um, I think, a, a demeaning way of treating seniors. And it's a serious stripping away and weakening of human rights in BC. Um, so I'm hoping that we will get um, a hearing at the Human Rights Tribunal. I hope that there will be some action about this. I hope that other people in the province care about this, that we should be a province that is kind to seniors, not, not, doesn't treat them in a discriminatory way that endangers their survival. Uh, so, Kathleen, is that the state that it's at now as far as are you waiting uh, to get a hearing? Uh, and that'll be the next step? Or what do you see as uh, the potential next step here? I have no idea what will be the next step. The um, Human Rights Tribunal um, scheduled mediation sessions for both the father's complaint and for the daughter's complaint. And uh, the, the court refused to participate in mediation sessions. 
And so father has since died uh, in June, and so his human rights case is is disappeared, doesn't exist anymore. And hope we'll be setting up a hearing at some point soon. I, I have no idea when. The complaint that I have, the third complaint I've filed on behalf of all seniors, the um, tribunal has um, acknowledged receipt of the complaint, giving it a have given it a case number, but they have not decided yet whether they will accept it or not. So I'm in the dark as to what will happen. Well, Kathleen, uh, we will continue following this and seeing what happens next. But thank you so much for joining us and for raising awareness and attention to this and for, for bringing this out today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, the province of British Columbia is currently looking at, well, doing some tweaks and changes to the Family Law Act, modernizing the act. And if it does, should the act include animals? Well, animal law lawyer Rebecca Bretter says yes. And Rebecca Bretter joins us now to talk more about this and why this change is needed. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. When it comes to the Family Law Act and the furrier members of our family, what would you like to see change? Well, I'd love to see the Family Law Act, which is the legislation that governs when couples separate in this province. I'd love that act to incorporate provisions dealing with our companion animals who anyone who has a dog, cat, hamster or any other companion animal knows that they are family and there's an increasing number of people who have pets and who feel that they are family and you wouldn't believe i mean a lot of people are surprised when i tell them just how many of these cases are increasing both in and outside of court but people are fighting over the whole question who gets the dog who gets the cat when we separate as a, as a couple And so now the Family Law Act um, doesn't have any provisions that deal specifically with companion animals. So we have to go kind of make things up as we go along. And it could there's confusion about whether courts even uh, certain courts have the jurisdiction or like, in other words, the, the power to even deal with these types of issues. In my cases, I take these cases to small claims usually and uh, and that's where we either resolve them in or 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 outside of court. But yeah, there's some um, there's definitely a need for the law to catch up with people's feelings and expectations that these issues be taken seriously. So, what would change then if the Family Law Act acknowledged animals or or brought companion animals into the act? What would how would that change things? Well, what what I was, I made written submissions to government on this point. And so, by the way, they're they're making changes, not just about pets and companion animals, but about a whole bunch of issues. So um, they reached out to me and some others about, well, hey, what do you think? We're we're thinking of making changes. What do you think if we um, included some provisions about companion animals? So I quickly got down to writing what I've learned over the last many, many years litigating these issues and what it would look like is, first of all, um, it would probably still fall under the property division of of the Family Law Act, which means that when couples separate and, you know, they're fighting over a fancy car or who gets the house and things like that, uh, the companion animals would fall under 
that section because animals are still considered quote unquote property, but there would be specific provisions dealing with it. So if we look at some of the other jurisdictions, not in Canada, but in places like Alaska, Illinois, uh, New York, and some other places, they include, and, and what I always fight for anyway, is let's look at what's in the best interest of the companion animal as one factor to decide who gets the dog or cat. What I would love to see included is actual clear provisions allowing the court to order that it's not just a matter of one or the other getting the dog or cat, but that the court would have the power to order joint custody, you know, kind of like kids, right? Um, unless there are extraordinary reasons why, why someone shouldn't have access or, or continue caring for the animal, you know, like domestic violence or, or animal abuse or something like that. I think that both couples should automatically um, have the right to keep taking care of the animal if that's what they want. So that's, that's one of the things, best interest, uh, joint custody, and then factors to actually consider what does best interest mean. You know, so it would be, I mean, in my view anyway, it would be things like who actually has the financial resources to take care of the companion animal, um, who has who has the bond with the animal, and maybe mo- both people do. But it's things like that. Like I got into a bit more of the nitty gritty type of stuff, but basically the the main issue is that let's include provisions, specific provisions dealing with companion animals. So instead of kind of just making things up as as we go along, because there really is confusion now uh, in the legal system about where to even take these cases. Right. Okay. And Rebecca, you know that I'm a dog person, probably probably too committed to my dogs at some point. I mean, recently I, I measured the circumference of my dog's head because I was getting him a bike helmet, which I no. realize sounds no. way, way out there. But, no, it's not. People would do that for their kid. Why not for their dog? You want to ensure their safety. Well, true. But, but that kind of goes yeah. to, do we run a risk of going too far in that, that dogs are not children, They're, that there is a difference between animals and and humans, do we run the risk of going too far in treating animals like humans? Well, that's a good question. And, and every now and then I get criticized about what? That's ridiculous. Like who would even fight over a dog or a cat? Just get another one. Well, the reality is, is that more and more people are feeling as they should, if you ask me and many others who feel and think the same way as I do, is that anim- companion animals are family. And there's absolutely no reason why if courts could be, well, think of it this way, if courts could be tied up with mundane issues over who gets the fancy car, who gets the house, who breached the contract, you know, over things, intangible things sometimes, and uh, then why not spend the right amount of time dealing with issues that are actually closest to our hearts, which is our family, and family includes companion animals. So anyone who says that, and, and on, on that note, I realize there are still judges who do think it's a waste of time. Luckily, not in my cases. <laughs> I, I've been lucky so far that I've been able to convince courts that these are issues that are serious enough that the couple hasn't been able to resolve them outside of court. And that's what court is about. If you can't resolve it, you go to court and then the judge makes a decision. So that's what it really comes down to is that if I don't think it's taking things too far at all. If anything, we're not taking it far enough. 
we need to be fighting for companion animals and other animals just as much as we do for people because they are some of the most vulnerable sentient beings in our society. So does it also point, though, if we take it a step before something would end up in court, should people be doing more to make sure they have those plans in place? I mean, if we're comparing it to that, uh, people generally with children have a plan in place. Should they pass away on who's going to look after their kids? Is it more than to avoid getting to that state down the road if you happen to split up or such that couples should have a plan and should have it, say, a notarized plan or something about their companion animals? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's one thing to have a will because it has to do with if, if someone unfortunately passes away. It's another thing to have kind of like a prenup type of agreement or a separation agreement in the case of separation who gets the dog or cat. But the reality is, is that the majority of people, when they're together, everything's good. You don't really think about it, right? In the same way as when you have kids, you often don't think about, well, if, if we separate who gets the kids, kind of the automatic assumption is that, well, both people will continue taking care of their kids together no matter even if they can't stand each other so the reality is is that when it comes to pet custody type of issues when things are good between couples the vast vast majority of people don't think about these things should they yeah i mean i guess just like everything else hindsight 2020 is always easier um said than done but but really going forward the question really does come down to that in these realistic situations when couples don't think about what to do with the companion animal when the couple separates, what to do then? Well, the court should be an available option to people. Of course, it's always better to settle, right? right? Always better not to spend the time, energy, emotional stress, and everything else that comes along with it to fight over things over court. But if a couple cannot settle these issues, then the court system should definitely be available as as it is now. It just I think we need a lot more clarity in the law and direction in the law about how to actually deal with these types of issues. Right. That's what's really missing. Right. And that answers my question. I was curious because it, it sounded it sounds like these issues do make it into the court system. But mm-hmm. like you're saying, so it just needs more clarity on the issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I take these these cases to court probably much more often than people would even imagine. But in the vast majority of my cases, I take them in what we call provincial court or small claims court. But there's also technically the civil resolution tribunal that may be able to deal with these issues. And then there's the Supreme Court, too. And there are advantages and disadvantages for all of them. But small claims is we go to small claims because it tends to be a bit faster it it tends to be a lot fairer because you actually have live witnesses and judges could actually listen to both sides on the stand and really assess credibility and things like that and uh and and it really is i mean it's still expensive but it's a heck of a lot less expensive than taking a matter like this in supreme court and then every now and then you get the other side that's like no no this should go to the supreme court but that's more of a procedural kind of tactic to just increase uh, costs and and, um, and add to delay in things. But yeah, so when it comes down to it, we really do need clarity in the law, even though these issues are being taken to court. And I could get if lawyers should never guarantee anything. <laughs> but if but if I could guarantee one thing is that pet custody issues will the rising and they will continue to rise as fewer people have fewer or sorry, as more people have fewer kids. They have more companion animals who they consider as their family, and they're going to fight over them, just like children. 
and and I completely, completely understand that feeling. And these issues are here to stay. So if that's the reality, then government really needs to update its laws in order to reflect the current social realities of our time. All right, Rebecca, we'll leave it there. But thanks, as always. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jill. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the B.C. Liberal Party could soon have a new name. The party says the proposed new name, B.C. United, was selected after the three-month membership consultation period. More than 2,000 suggestions were submitted, but the name B.C. United is the one moving forward and could potentially be the new name. Well, we're going to open up the phone lines in just a few moments, but right now we are joined by Stuart Prest, political scientist at Quest University in Squamish. Stuart, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. It's my pleasure. What was your first reaction when you heard the name BC United could be the next name for the BC Liberals? Well, I think like a lot of people, the first thing that pops into mind is the soccer reference, and so a couple of soccer-related jokes. But uh, I, I think that must have been an expectation when the, when the name was chosen, that there would be some joking around afterwards. But I think it's it's pretty clear the party is... It, this is part of a, a larger plan of uh, rehabilitation of the party, trying to, to put it in a, a different direction, a different space uh, going forward. Uh, the party saying that BC United reflects a fresh alternative, expressing a commitment to unity across a broad coalition of members, while also highlighting the name BC. Uh, do you think it's possible that, that they also knew that it would get people talking, making soccer references, and that would at least create some buzz about it? I suspect that is the case. It does feel a little bit gimmicky, but but here we are talking about it, so I I guess it worked. (laughs) How important, then, is a party name? And the difference being when you're talking about a brand new party, or in this case, when we're talking about a well-established party changing the name? Well, I think the name changes. It's always uh, going to be part of some larger transformation, whether that's a, a merger, as we saw with the United Conservative Party of Alberta recently, or uh, an attempt to create a, a single alternative, say, with the Saskatchewan Party in uh, in Saskatchewan. It's an attempt to signal that there's something new, something different going on. And uh, here, in the case of the, the Liberal Party, it is a, a part of a larger attempt to to try to show that this party, which seemingly lost its way in the, after the, uh, two successive electoral losses, and, and the, the last one quite a uh, convincing loss, that, that something had to change, that there was some something different uh, needed. And so we have a new leader. We have some sense of uh, a, a different uh, approach to politics, and, and we can talk a bit about that in a minute. But, but now the, the, uh, uh, the changing name becomes a part of that story. And I think if this is going to be judged a success, ultimately, it's, it's uh, as a piece or of a piece with these other changes that, that come on stream. And we, we can't really judge yet whether those are going to be successful or not. Right. But when you have an established party, do you not run the risk of changing the name, which is fine, a party can do that. But do you not run the risk of the public being a little cynical of that, saying you can change the name all you like, but if you're not going to to change other things, then, then what's the point? You're the same party under a different name. 
Absolutely, and and that is, I think, pretty clearly how the the NDP plans to attack this. Is just as BC Liberals by another name, they defeated it. They they lost under one name, they can lose under a new name. And I think the fact that uh, Kevin Falcon was such a prominent cabinet uh, minister in those previous Liberal governments makes it a little easier to make that case. So uh, that puts all the more emphasis on other uh, attendant changes to show that this this party has learned from its electoral losses, that it is going to approach politics differently. Is it still an issue, do you think, uh, the name BC Liberals, that people somehow associate it with the federal Liberals? I think it is uh, perhaps uh, an issue for some, that if you are a, say, a um, a true blue conservative, it just may feel uncomfortable having to vote for a liberal party, even if it's it's not really related in any organizational way or even in terms of the kinds of policies being brought forward. Uh, that, that creates a, a sort of negative connotation. I think it can create a little bit of confusion. Certainly when I try to explain BC politics to anyone from, from outside the province, there, there, that uh, is an additional wrinkle that I have to, to clarify. So there, there is a, a potential for confusion, and it, it may create a, a certain divide, given that the, this party clearly exists to try to pull from uh, both federal liberal and federal conservative voters. And that's always been an uneasy marriage, a marriage of convenience at times. But, uh, but this name represents a fresh attempt to, to do that. Right. And you mentioned, too, that the the pushback probably or the what the opponents will do, the New Democrats will do is, is point out that, again, it is the same party uh, with a longstanding uh, member the, who is now the leader. So what does a party like this have to do if what if, if the goal is to show people that it's changed and, and in the words of the party that this reflects a fresh alternative? Well, I think we're seeing some of those uh, those changes already. So when we see the the election of Eleanor Sturco as, as an MLA uh, for for the Liberals, a member of the LGBTQ community, uh, we see uh, the expulsion of I believe it's uh, John Rustad for expressing anti uh, essentially anti climate. Uh, views or anti-climate change views, skepticism regarding the, the realities and the need to act. So we're, we're seeing that Kevin Falcon as leader is just uh, somewhat ironically given this idea of a, a BC United name for the party that is drawing different kinds of, uh, of lines. So in some ways it's a, uh, a party that is attempting to be more inclusive to try to, to um, uh, be socially and inclusive, inclusive in a way that the BC Liberal Party wasn't always seen as being. But also to draw a definitive line uh, uh, separating the party from some of those more right of center uh, views on the more of uh, the more populist bent or the more say socially conservative bent and the uh, the barring of Aaron uh, Gunn from the, the leadership race is of a piece with that as well. Right, uh, absolutely. Um, what about the the having to put BC in the title? The, one of the the reasons behind this as well, saying that this also highlights the province's name. I mean, unless you're really, if you're that far removed from anything political, my guess is you're probably not paying attention and maybe not even voting. Do we really need the word BC in there so that we know it's a provincial party? Uh, I mean, it's a good question, and and, and again, I think the. The, the name ultimately is, is, is a marker and it's going to be judged as part of this larger transformation. Putting BC in the name, I think uh, it, it, it's, uh, it speaks to the idea that perhaps 
when they were they had a whiteboard and they were trying to to come up with the name for the party, the first one they thought of was the BC Party. But that one has already been registered with Elections BC, so they needed to come up with something else. And so, sort of working on that theme, this is where they ended up. But it, it I think it does speak to this uh, desire to try to create uh, something of a generic, uh, positive-sounding name that that a lot of different British Columbians can can see themselves identifying with, and, and to be. Um, to, to be a, of the, the the British Columbia political landscape, but but you're right, it may be just gilding the lily a little bit. Everyone knows what problems we're talking about. All right, Stuart Prest, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime.